I was kind of thinking how, how, we, how we begin this morning and uh, whether even bringing the kids up or, or not. And I thought, well, you know, I've been working on some projects at home recently. But sometimes when you're, when you're woodworking, you know, you get in the middle of it. And, but I find sometimes, and I don't know if I'm getting tired or what, but, but it, it gets harder and harder to see what I'm doing and what I'm working on. And, and, and after a while, you know, you, uh, you, you start missing things. And, and, and when you're working with, us, with power tools and things, that can be a bit of a problem, right? Uh, that the, 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 the we need to have our, sometimes, and I think for, for us as well, that we, that we need to, you know, have our eyes checked, as, as Pastor Evan alluded to earlier, that we need to see more clearly than we think we do. And uh, what can we do to do that? How can I see more clearly? What can I do? Anybody? There, there's, something wrong, you, there's something wrong with the lens that I'm looking through, right? Maybe, maybe if I said it just this way, maybe sometimes we need to look at things through a different lens. That's, that's, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. You know, the, the Scripture tells us, and, and we pray this at times before we get into God's Word, we, we, we pray, God, open my eyes that I might behold, that I might see, that I might perceive wondrous things in your Word. And that wondrous things or wonderful things, we think of that, of that in terms often of just uh, things that are great things that are good, things that are fantastic, but that wondrous, wonderful, awe-inspiring things includes things that are beyond us, things that we can't really understand. God, reveal to us, open our eyes to things out of your word, your revelation, things that we couldn't know, things that we'd never come up with. We cannot perceive without you showing them to us. God, that is our prayer this morning. Open our eyes that we might behold, even in this Mark chapter 8, wonderful things from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Mark chapter 8 is, is one of those chapters that, that moves really quick. It moves from incident to incident or episode to episode. And we are going to binge watch this morning in the sense that we're going to move quickly through. We're going to have fast forward on through several of these episodes because we want to get to the season finale, this chapter. The end of this chapter, I, I think these others are really leading to that point in a unique way. We're actually coming to the, the turning point, the key point of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, each of the Gospels kind of have this one way or another, and uh, Mark is, that's where we're arriving this morning. So, we want to start out with this, uh, what am I missing? Or, what do you see? What do you see? And, what do I need to do to maybe see things differently? Well, if we jump into Mark chapter 1, first of all, the disciples don't see. And this one, it, it, it's almost comical. Okay, we, we in those days, and they have, they have come back around. He has just uh, healed the deaf man in, in, in Mark chapter 7. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, they're on the eastern side of the, of the Sea of Galilee still. They're in that Decapolis area where uh, they had healed the, they had healed the, Jesus had healed the demoniac before. And uh, now they, they've healed this, this, uh, this, this deaf man. And now in chapter 8, verse 1, those days when again a great crowd had gathered, 
They had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. And again, I could point out that when Jesus does these miracles, many of these miracles are not for the intention of, let me do something wonderful. Let me do a, a, a miraculous sign so that people will know who I am. He does these things because of who he is. He, he does this out of his compassion for these people, not because he's trying to prove something to him to, to them. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days. They have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar away. But his disciples, his disciples being, being very pragmatic, they're very practical about this. They, they say in verse 4, how can one, how could someone, how could anyone feed this people with bread here in this desolate place? There is no Winco here. What are we supposed to do? How could anyone feed this number of people? And it's about 4,000 or 4,000 plus women and children. Now, doesn't that strike you as funny? Haven't we been around this block once before? Is it not that long ago that Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with just five loaves and two fishes? And yet the disciples hear, how can anyone feed this many people in this desolate place? Doesn't it depend on who the one is? For them, yes, this is impossible. We don't have the means for this. But doesn't it depend on who they see Jesus to be? And the, and the disciples, the point here is the disciples have already seen who he is. We've seen who he is. We have experienced God's grace and mercy in time of need. We have, perhaps you have, I hope, come to the point where you have seen Jesus as the Son of God. God in humanity came to us because of God's love for us to die in our place. That God so loved you that he gave his own son in death to give you eternal life. And you've seen that. You've received that. And yet, we've, sometimes we don't see along the way what we've already seen at some point before. And that's where the disciples are here. You run into that when, when something comes up. There's, there's a need. There's a, there's a it might be, oh, this VBC Kids... How could I work with those kids for a week? Well, how could I is a problematic question. Because, it, first of all, it puts the focus in the wrong direction, as if the disciples were saying, well, how could we feed this? Well, you can't, but he can. It's not about what can I do, it's what would the Spirit of the living God do for me. How could I is not the Spirit of the living God dwelling within you. So it's, it's, it's no longer, I was having a conversation with somebody before, before worship began this morning, and, and it's not a matter of what can I do. It, it now becomes a matter of, Lord, what should I do? Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you intend to do through me as opposed to somebody else? That's where the question then needs to go. Genuine faith is not so much what we believe about the distant future. Well, for some of you, maybe not the so distant future. We just don't know, do we? 
But genuine faith is really about today. What do you believe concerning our God and Savior for today? And the difference that makes today. The disciples have seen, but they don't see. Now let's jump ahead. Let's hit the fast forward button and and, and stop off again at verse 11. Here the Pharisees don't see. And they don't see a sign. They don't see, and so they're not going to see a sign. Jesus isn't going to give them one. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came. Now, after the feeding of the 5,000, they get in the boat. There's a lot of boat travel here. They go across to the other, other shore, probably to the, to the town of Magdala. Um, this is the only mention of Dalmanutha, and it seems like nobody knows for sure where Dalmanutha is, but when you compare it to the other Gospels, then it, it becomes clear this is, this is near, the, near the town or city of Magdala. Think of Mary Magdalene. Okay. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign. Maybe that's why Jesus was in the Decapolis for a while. Not so many Pharisees there. Whew. Okay, but now we're in the middle of again. Here are the Pharisees. They're all around, and they've gathered. They've, they've, they've got some scribes with them, and he, he, he sighs. They, they're arguing with him, testing him, seeking from him a sign. Show us a sign from heaven that backs up these, all these things that you're saying. And, and, and Jesus sighs deeply. He groans. Think of this like Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He groans. Do you ever think about, what do I do that makes God groan? That makes Jesus just say, oh, this is it. It, Prove it to me, God. Never been there. Okay, but... Prove it. I, 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 got, I got to see it to believe it. And yet, what have they been seeing all along? Haven't they been seeing both the heart and compassion of their God and Savior? Haven't they been seeing the, the um, characteristics of the kingdom? The Messiah comes, and as he tells the disciples of John, when they come and say, John was wondering, are you the one, really, that we, as, as, as he understood? Or should we be looking for someone else who's actually the Messiah? And Jesus says, well, John knows the scriptures. You go and tell John. You go back and tell John what you see. That the lame walk, that the deaf hear, that the blind see, that the dead are raised, that the poor have the gospel preached to them. He'll know that's what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. There'll be no blindness. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no lame. There'll be no, no, no dying. Tears will be wiped away. He said, you show John the the characteristics that you've seen around my ministry and he'll recognize it for what it is. But perhaps the Pharisees had too much sawdust on their goggles, sawdust on their safety glasses. Maybe it's safer, maybe it's safer for us with those safety glasses. Maybe it's safer to not see. The question is asked, Jesus sighs deeply, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. This generation reminds me of when God talks about that generation from the wilderness. And they would not believe, and because they would not believe, it wasn't that they couldn't believe, they would not believe, they chose not to. And because they would not believe, they did not enter into God's rest. Forty years they wandered in wilderness. Forty years round and about, here and there, sand dune to sand dune, in the wilderness, in desert. 
and their, the following generation, their children whom they accused God of bringing out into this troubled place that, so they could die there. You brought us out here so our children could die in this desert. Those children were the ones who entered into God's rest. So this generation is like that generation, he says, and our generation can be like that too. We live in a generation of obstinate unbelief. We, we, we live in a generation that understands better than God. And so we can identify with this not seeing. And a sign won't help. It's not that Jesus is withholding from them. If they don't hear God's word, as Jesus says at one point, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they hear even if someone would rise from the dead. Jesus will. They still won't believe it. You know, faith comes by hearing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith comes, well, that's actually Romans 10, but, but faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. Faith, in fact, is divine, defined in Hebrews chapter 11 as the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things, what? Not yet seen. That's right. What we believe God for will be seen, but we do not see it yet. That's why it's faith. Faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. No sign will be given. Now, it's not just the Pharisees. The disciples need to see. They all get back in the boat again, not, not wasting our time with the Pharisees, across the sea again on the northern edge, back to, Beth, back to Bethsaida. And verse 22, fast forward again. No, no, sorry, verse 14, we're still in the boat. Let's not skip this part. They had forgotten to bring bed. They forgot to grab bread. They forgot to grab lunch before they got back in the boat, you know. Burger King right there, get a burger, then get into the boat and go. They, they didn't do that. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them. So that's just a little circumstance. In the midst of Jesus' words, he's not talking about their bread. He cautioned them from this encounter with the Pharisees, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they begin discussing this fact with one another. They hear leaven and they're thinking about what? Bread. Maybe they're hungry and so when something about bread comes up, their mind goes to the bread. And Jesus, aware of what they're thinking, he says to them, why are you discussing this fact that you have no bread? That's not the point. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? You know, Hebrews, Hebrews picks up a quote out of Psalm 95. And that, that, that quote out of Psalm 95 says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not, des not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. Behold, it is written in the scroll of the book, I have come to do your will. There's a neat thing in the Hebrew out of Psalm 95 where it says a body you have prepared for me in the, Greek, the old Greek version of the Old Testament that was used in the first century. But step back further into the Hebrew text and what the Hebrew says, in ear you have dug for me. My ear you have opened so that I can hear, so that I can come and do your will. And that, Psalm 95, is fulfilled in the incarnation and the human life of the Son of God, Jesus, who does hear and who does God's will for us. And, and that's the one that we follow. 
That's, that's the one whom we step behind. And here they are in the midst of the boat after Jesus has, has fed 5,000 and as he's fed 4,000. And there's these 12. And they're worried about what they're going to eat. Does that strike you as a little odd? Five loaves, 5,000. Seven loaves, 4,000. One loaf, 12? Is it possible? What are they worried about? What are you anxious about? What need is out there? What trouble hangs over you that you wonder? What can God do about this? He has done wonderful things, but what could he do about my thing? Oh, we need to have our eyes opened. Oh, we need to see through new lenses. The disciples also need to see. It's kind of like that story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 6. The city is surrounded, and Elisha and his, and his servant, in the morning they get up and they look probably over the city walls out to the hillside roundabout, and there are, there are a, the, 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 the soldiers of the enemy are all around the city. There's, the city is under siege. There is no way out. And, and his servant says, what are we going to do? And, and Elisha says, don't worry, there's nothing to worry about here. That those who are with us are more than those who are with them. His servant looks around the city again. He looks around the hills again. He says, wow. And Elisha says, Lord, please open his eyes. Please open his eyes. And then... God opens his eyes for the servant to see the armies of the host of the Lord, these angels all around, surrounding for ambush, these soldiers that don't even know they're there. If we really could see, not only to know that we are involved in a spiritual battle, that the trouble is not with the person in front of you, that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces and heavenly places, and you think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do against that? Nothing. But what is he going to do against that? Even better than more are they who are with us than they who are with them, how about greater Greater is he who is in you than the enemy who is, who is throughout the world. In us, the spirit of the living God. Wow. Faith is not blind. People talk about blind faith. No, faith is not blind, but faith requires the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. It, it, it calls for knowing and remembering who God is, who he has been, who he will be yesterday, today, to forever. I am the same, I change not, he says. That's why we, we read what he's done, because that is who he is and will be in the middle of your present trouble, present trial. You're waiting for his future. He has been, he is, and he will be. They've seen God work beyond their understanding. They, they saw it when he sent them out. They saw it when he, with no provisions, and yet they were provided for, and it was wonderful, and they came back and celebrated the stories. And in the midst of not even having time to celebrate before, they see the feeding of the 5,000, and now there's the feeding of the 4,000. And now they're on the boat again with him. And who are they on the boat with? They're on the boat with the one who commands the winds and treads the wave. What do we have to be afraid of? 
What do we have to be hesitant about? What are we going to do for lunch? He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, who are puffed up in their own perspective. I tried to figure out, what could that leaven be of Pharisees and Herod? What in the world do, do Pharisees and Herod have in common? And the one thing is this, they have heard from God and that they've chosen instead to keep the sawdust glasses on. They have heard from God, and yet they've said, we're going to do it our way. We're going to put our way above God's word. Herod does it with John the Baptist. The Pharisees do it with Jesus. Concerning the Sabbath, concerning Corbin or things devoted to God, we're going to do it our way. There is a, there is a danger. There is a danger that we hear, and yet we prefer our own way instead of what God's word says. The disciples just don't get it. It's hard for, it's hard for us to go beyond our, our, our default framework, isn't it? One of the guys in our Monday workshop, he said, you know, I was good at math until I took algebra. It's still math. In fact, the same rules of addition and division and multiplication apply. They all work the same. It wasn't that addition suddenly changed in algebra or multiplication or division. All of a sudden, the rules are different. No, it's still the same math, except now there's an unknown variable. That's the problem with life, isn't it? It's the N's or the X's. Whatever, whatever symbol in your life is that unknown variable, that thing that you can't control and you don't even know what it is. We were good at math, but we're living in algebra. And that's where we need to trust him. Because... My unknown variable is not unknown to my God. I can trust him. This is illustrated by this, this, this trusting him and being able to walk in his new way. This is illustrated by the blind man. We come to verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. Get out of the boat. Some people brought to him a blind man. They begged, they, they begged Jesus to touch this blind man that he could be healed. Again, here's another crowd looking for a sign. Well, Jesus isn't playing the sign game today. So he takes him away from the crowd, off by himself. He took the blind man, he led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Are you healed? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. I can see Kind of. Cataracts? I'm healed. You've given me sight. A little. We see dimly. And the day will come. Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 14, I think it is, that we will see face to face. Maybe it's chapter 13. We long for that day, yet we're still living in this day. And like the disciples, they see but not clearly yet. And so then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That's where the disciples are in these incidents. They're between the first, the first and the second in this two-stage. It's one of the only two-stage healings that Jesus does. It's for the point of, of what's being surfaced in the flow of all these episodes. First he sees Kind of. 
He sees the same thing, but he doesn't see the details to the same extent. And then he sees everything clearly. And so now Jesus went with his disciples, in verse 27, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And here's that wonderful picture in your bulletin this morning. This cave is, uh, and the stream in front of it, that stream is one of the four streams that combine together as the headwaters of the Jordan. And originally, this stream, this, this cave is at Caesarea Philippi. And this stream originally, until there was an earthquake a few hundred years later, in the first century, the stream flowed right out of the mouth of the cave. I think we have a picture of it. There it is. There's the same stream. And now, let me show you what it looked like, though, in the first century. This is a pagan Disneyland. There, were, there was a temple right in front of the cave. There was a temple to Augustus. Now, what this picture doesn't show is the river that flowed out of the cave, and that cave was understood from centuries before to be the entrance to Hades, to be the entrance to the place of the dead. So if you think in other, other, other mythology about the river Styx, here it is flowing out of this cave. This, is the cave. this cave is the entrance to death, and right in front of it, Herod built a temple. Herod didn't build just a temple in Jerusalem. Herod built here a temple to Caesar Augustus. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if, you're, if you are king because of the emperor, it's good to recognize the emperor and show your appreciation. And give him some love. And Herod's giving him some love. Herod takes the Ezekiel's vision of the millennial temple where a life-giving river of God flows out of the temple and gives life even to the Dead Sea. Herod takes that idea and he makes it his own. And he takes what was a temple entryway into the cave of death and that river flowing out of it. Right next to that, there's a, there's a temple to Pan. There is a temple to the, to the god Nemesis, the god of the avenger, the, the um, vindicator, a god of, of justice and um, a god of retribution. There was, I, I mentioned Pan, there was even a temple of the dancing goats. They even had special tombs that when the dancing goats expired, there were these special tombs for the dancing goats. This was a pagan Disneyland, and it's in this environment that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is the point. Who do we know him to be will determine how we see everything else. What we see about Jesus determines how we see the circumstances that we're in the middle of. Who do people say that I am? What are they seeing? Verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. All of those falling short. Supernaturally empowered, wonderful things are happening, but this is, this is within our framework, what we've understood out of the past. Past experience is limiting their present view. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter like always, and you love him for this. Peter jumps up and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Peter sees it, but he doesn't see clearly as we, as we keep the story going. Now, now it's a wonderful thing to, to stretch and, 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 and speak up. And yet, sometimes... Sometimes we, we don't see things as they really are. Um, Jesus is going to say more, and we're going to find out that, that Peter is not actually getting it to the extent that he does. Peter sees Jesus as the Christ. 
And that asserting, that, that assertion, stretching to speak up, but there's also a stretch to perceive more than our present circumstance would give us. An example, that scene more, out of a quote I read from C.S. Lewis. At the start, during World War II, C.S. Lewis was a little controversial. He said World War II was actually an opportunity. It was an opportunity for the gospel. This, he said, a war was an opportunity for all to realize humanity's need for rescue. He says, what does war, and as I read this, I put in brackets, pandemic. What does war or pandemic do to death? It certainly does not make death more frequent. A hundred percent of us die. The percentage cannot be increased. Yet war, pandemic, does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason that cancer at 60 um, or paralysis at 75 do not bother those of us who were younger now is that we forget them. They're, They're comfortably far off. Now and again, they intrude much closer, don't they? And they remind us of something. They remind us of our own mortality. They remind us of our need for rescue. All schemes of happiness, he says, centered in this world, were always doomed to final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can see it. But in a time of war, even the stupid of us us can see it. Now that's C.S. Lewis, not me. Verse 31, Jesus tells them plainly. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after the third day rise again. And he said this plainly. And when he says that plainly, this stuff about being rejected and dying, that's when Peter objects. He's polite enough to take him off to the side. And Peter rebukes Jesus for saying these kind of things. Now, we look back on that now, and it's a little humorous to us, isn't it? Peter Peter didn't realize what he could not see. But do you ever correct God? Do you ever point out to God the things that he ought to be doing, the things that God must be missing because if he only saw it the way you saw it, things would be different? And, And Jesus says to him, you are not representing the mind of God, but the mind of Satan and the ways of man. The contrary to the way of Satan, contrary to the mind of man, is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and he says, follow me. To be the Christ who brings in the kingdom is not enough. It's in this passage that Jesus will go on to say that what will it gain a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Jesus could bring in the kingdom And the disciples and Israel would gain the world in the kingdom and yet lose their souls in the bargain. The only way to save our souls is for the Son of Man to be rejected and crucified and die, buried, and rise again. To go through death for us in order to give us his life for all who believe on him. And yet, we too easily deny the cross rather than deny ourselves. It's contrary to the normal mind of man that humanity will always do. It's why capitalism works, that humanity can always be trusted to do what is in their own best interest. And Jesus calls us out of that. 
He calls us to follow him because he did not do what was in his own best interest. He did what was in our best interest according to our eternal need. And he says, follow me there. Follow me that way, denying yourself. Take up your own cross and follow me. Now, to de- for us to deny ourselves is not just a certain sacrifice, a certain cost. It's also denying our own perspective. It's denying our own convictions and trusting instead his perspective. God's principles, even when they don't seem to make sense in our circumstances. As Job says, though he slay me and all of this trouble, and even if it leads to my death, it makes no sense to me and all that I understand. But though he even slay me, Job says, yet will I trust him. It's miserable, the circumstances that Job was in, and yet he slogs on. I have to trust God. I have no other way. We easily assume what I like is what should be. We need to set aside our own filters. We need to rather accept God's truth even when we don't understand it. One of of my friends, again, that Monday workshop, gave an example. He he was the beneficiary of this wonderful dream of a hunting trip in Scotland. And they're they're hunting birds in Scotland. And he's he's taken a shotgun and he's he's gone bird hunting before. So he knows this is done. You don't shoot where the bird is. You shoot where the bird's going to be. Because if you shoot where the bird is, by the time the shot gets to where the bird is, was the bird's not there anymore and you miss. And so you lead the bird. You shoot ahead. You shoot to where you think the bird's going to be. But he kept missing. He's shooting, he's shooting, he's shooting, and the birds are just flying off. And he's, he's asked the guys that are from there, what am I doing wrong? How? He says, well, you got to lead them more. He says, I am leading them. Well, you got to lead them more. And so he says, okay, well, he leads them more than makes sense from his own experience, I guess shooting slow ducks in the past, and, and he leads them more, and he, and he misses, and he misses. And he said, no, 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 you got to lead them more. He says, okay, fine. Then he just, he just leads them out there a ridiculous amount. Okay, lead them more. Okay, bang. Birds start falling out of the sky. We have got to be willing to trust the Lord to, to go far beyond what we can imagine how it ought to be, and not just out of the whim of our heads, but according to what he says. To deny himself, to take up our cross, and to follow him. To trust the Lord with all our heart and do what? The proverb says, lean not on our own understanding. Lord, this this doesn't make sense. I'm going to have to trust you. For instance, praying for our country. We'll pray for our nation. We'll pray for our community. We'll pray for our society. But do we pray to return to some previous era as we've imagined it? Do we pray to to return as a culture to some traditional morality? Or maybe would we pray that in this breakdown, like a war, that in the midst of this, that we would see our need for God's rescue, it would be more obviously exposed to the people around us. People are looking for justice, and there's an opportunity. Where could justice possibly be found? Let's talk about a different kind of justice. Let's talk about a kind of justice where my wrong has been met by God's right in my place. My debt has been paid. This present angst, this, this expression of people's 
unfulfillment, emptiness, longing, it might not be a time of great trouble. It might be a time of great opportunity. Being in need may be a better place to see God's provision, what God has done. On the other hand, as you're doing what seems to make sense in life, a promotion you accept or a move that you make, that promotion may require more of your heart, more of your time, more of your commitment in ways that will take you away from your family when those kids need you. And maybe I'm talking to something that some of you have experienced in the past. Or maybe a move is going to take you away. If you take that move, because it looks better, but that move is going to take you away from a place where you have had the opportunity to, to build into the lives of others. And sometimes it's to stick where you are. See, I can't tell you, I, I can't tell you that to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to, to follow him is going to lead to some dramatic change in where you are or what you're doing. It might be more of a change of how you are, where you are. It's a question of, Lord, what would you have me to do? Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? He's confronted with the risen Savior, and his question is, Lord, what would you have me to do? And still he goes where he was going before when he was in direct opposition to God. Still he goes to Damascus. That's still where God sends him. But Paul is different there, and so Paul does very different there. Things have changed. So it is a matter not of maybe where do I got to go? What do I got to do differently? It's, Lord, what would you have me to do? One of the things I've enjoyed about the, um, there's, a, there's a video series out there called The Chosen. And it's a, it's a, it's a televised, it's, it's on YouTube, it's other places. It's a, um, one of the apps is called VidAngel, I think. You can, you can find, if you search for The Chosen, you'll find it. And they're into the second series now. So the first, the first year of episodes is completed. They're in the midst of the second year and now. And, and in the midst of this, one of the things I like about it most is the opening. The opening. What do we mean about the opening? Uh, for the chosen. There's, this, there's these fish. And it starts out with there's all these gray fish going in one direction. And then one fish peels off and goes the opposite direction. And then there's another fish. And then there's another fish until there are how many fish? Twelve fish going the opposite direction of all the other fish. That's us. Now in the middle of it, it normally says the chosen. I put this phrase instead because it reminds me of a particular episode where Peter is struggling with what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. He says, but, but this is so different. And Jesus smiles and says, get used to different. Get used to different. That's what we need to do. Lord, help me get used to different, to your different, which really is eternal reality that we could step into in the midst of the day. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for different. Lord, thank you for these, these episodes that do help to open our eyes to who you are and what you will do. Lord, I don't know the individual challenges of each of us in the room this morning. But Lord, I know something. And Father, I admit that I see through sawdust, obscured glasses I do not see clearly. But Father, do this. Would you, by your Spirit, call to my remembrance those things which I have seen about you? And Father, would you further open my eyes so that I might see you from your word? 
your will for me from your word. That I would believe you concerning your spirit then to dare to take that next step into denying myself, giving myself away for somebody else. And Lord, that today or that this week, in a way that would show others also, in the midst of obscured vision, would show the people around me something of Jesus. We pray that, Father. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Amen.